Well, good morning, everyone. I have really been looking forward to speaking today. As Jeremiah already mentioned, uh, we're celebrating All Saints Day this morning. November 1st is the actual day that we celebrate All Saints as a church. It falls on November 1st every year, so that would have been Tuesday. But it is common that we mark it the Sunday after, so that is today. And All Saints Day is a day that the church sets aside to remember. It's a day to remember the people who've come before us in the faith, those saints who are well-known and well-revered around the globe, and the saints that are lesser-known, the people in our lives who've had an important part to play in our development in some way. So we're going to have a special prayer time to mark that this morning, and I'm looking forward to that with each of you. But in light of All Saints Day, this week I have been thinking a lot about this practice of remembering what does it mean to remember? Why does the church feel that it's important to set aside this day to remember? How do we remember, right? How do we remember personally as individuals and as a community? And I've been thinking a lot about how remembering as a practice might help deepen our discipleship. And that's the curiosity that I want to explore with each of you this morning. What I'm curious about, go ahead and throw that first slide up there, Derek. What I'm curious about is how stepping into this practice of remembering might lead to deeper intimacy with God, how it might lead to a deeper intimacy in community, and how it might lead to our growth or, 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 or our formation in Christ-likeness. So to scratch that itch of curiosity this morning, I want us to look at a relationship that we see throughout the New Testament. This is a relationship that Jeremiah has already pointed us towards. Who still has their cards? of the seven relationships of a disciple. Okay. So this is one that Jeremiah has suggested that every disciple needs. The relationship I want to look at is the relationship between the Apostle Paul and Timothy. Timothy is mentioned in various places throughout the New Testament. We see him uh, mentioned in the book of Acts. We see his name mentioned throughout Paul's letters, and we know that there are two letters specifically that Paul has written to Timothy. And that's where I want us to direct our focus today. This morning, we're going to look at Paul's second letter, the first 14 verses. However, before I read the scripture, let me see if I can provide a little bit of context, just a shade more of our understanding. I want to see if I can't name a little bit more about who Timothy is, what's going on in the church at the time these letters are written, and what's going on in Paul's life when these letters are written. Okay, so let me start there. Most of us already know that Paul, the Apostle Paul, spent many years traveling about starting new churches, right? And he wasn't alone in that. Along the way, he was developing a pretty robust team of co-workers, Barnabas, Silas, Junia, Phoebe, among others. Right? There were many people with him, co-laboring for the sake of the kingdom to share this gospel message, and one of those people was Timothy. During his missionary travels, Paul visited the city of Lystra, and that is where he met the faithful women, the faithful grandmother and mother of Timothy, and Timothy himself. I can point you to Acts 16, the first three verses of that book is where you're going to see a glimpse of this encounter, and it's going to be in our text this morning as well. Okay, And we can interpret from the scripture that Paul was impressed with this young Timothy. Right? He was impressed with Timothy's, Tim, Timothy's passion and devotion to Jesus, and it's pretty clear that Timothy was a well-respected person among the people who knew them. So Paul mentored Timothy for many years and eventually started to send him on missions to different churches. When Paul receives word that there's a group of leaders in the influential church 
in Ephesus. They had infiltrated the church. They were spreading some incorrect views about who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him. Paul sent Timothy to go and confront these leaders and restore order to the church in Ephesus. And so Paul's first letter to Timothy is, uh, it was sent to him right after he'd arrived in Ephesus. And it was intended to provide some instruction, instruction to Timothy about how to address these issues. Right? That's the kind of content that we see in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy. It's instruction about what to do about this bad theology and distorted teaching that were contributing to division within the church. And this first letter also contains very practical instruction for Timothy. Paul is trying to give this young pastor a holistic vision of what the church is or what the church ought to be, and at the same time commissioning him and encouraging him to lead the church through challenges. Paul's second letter where I want us to look today, has a different purpose, okay? There's discrepancies around how much time has passed between the writing of these two letters. So we don't have perfect accuracy about that, but what we, what we can infer from the content of the second letter is that Paul's situation has drastically changed. He is writing now having been imprisoned in Rome. This could have been written during his first imprisonment, the house arrest that we see at the end of the book of Acts. Or it could have been written... Uh, during a second imprisonment, which some clues at the end of this chapter might suggest. Either way, Paul is writing his second letter as if it's a kind of farewell letter. He's in the middle of a court trial. It's not going well. Paul seems to be writing as if he's not going to survive this one. In fact, part of Paul's plea to Timothy, which we see at the end of the letter, is for Timothy to come to Rome, bring some of his belongings, and visit him for one final time. Like the first letter, the second letter is intended to encourage Timothy. Paul is reminding him that hardship and sacrifice are an inherent part of the Christian life. It's a letter about endurance. It's a letter about long-suffering. It's a letter about staying committed to this gospel thing, always remembering, even in the midst of difficulty, especially in the midst of difficulty, that it's the resurrected Jesus that we look to. It's the resurrected Jesus that is the foundation of Christian hope. Paul is reminding Timothy that there will be suffering and that he will be required to sacrifice for this greater cause, but he's encouraging him not to lose sight of where our true hope lies. Okay, so I hope that brings a shade more understanding to the situation in which Paul writes. Let me go ahead and now read the first 14 verses of Paul's second letter to Timothy. And again, I want us to see what we can glean here about this practice of remembering. So as I read, keep that in the back of your mind. So... Paul's second letter to Timothy, starting in verse 1. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying out of my hands, for God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner, 
but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason, I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. The word of the Lord. So what is Paul up to here? What is he offering Timothy? As I already said, this letter is first and foremost a letter of encouragement. We know that Timothy has been leading the church in Ephesus. And while we don't have a first-hand account from Timothy... We can glean from Paul's letters that he is up against a lot. He is facing difficulty. So Paul is writing to encourage this man, to encourage him to brace the calling upon his life, to endure through hardship. And how does Paul attempt to encourage Timothy? I see a few ways. I see Paul calling Timothy first to remember who he is. I see Paul calling Timothy to remember who Jesus is. And I see Paul calling Timothy to remember who they are together. He is calling Timothy to remember. Let me unfurl each of those ideas a little bit further. Let's look first at the salutation. Go ahead and throw that slide back out there. Thanks, Derek. To Timothy, my beloved child, a beloved child. In his first letter, Paul addresses Timothy as my loyal child in the faith. Each of Paul's epistles, whether they are addressed to the church in Rome or the church in Corinth or the churches in Galatia or Philippi, etc., each of Paul's letters to these early churches begin with a salutation that offer God's people a reminder of who God is and who they are. He doesn't start his letters in the same way every time, but there is a pattern to those salutations. Before Paul gives any instruction, any correction, any rebuking, any encouragement, Paul makes sure that his readers know who they are, that they are beloved saints, sons and daughters of the Most High King, sisters and brothers of the faith. That's a small detail, but it's one that I think is really important. He addresses Timothy as my beloved child. To be clear, Timothy is not a child. Timothy is younger than Paul, but he is also leading an influential church in an influential city. This is not a demeaning or patronizing greeting in any way. Paul is inviting Timothy to remember something, to remember that beneath his efforts, beneath all the responsibility that he carries, beneath this very important work he's been called to serve the church, despite the hardship, despite his youthfulness, despite the cultural makeup of his family or any other factor that would contribute to his identity, he is foremost a child of God deeply loved by God and by Paul. I can't think of a better way to start a letter. It's as if Paul is saying, before we get down to business, Timothy, let me remind you who you are. And then he builds on this. Paul goes on to say, I am grateful to God when I remember you constantly in my prayers. Once more, Paul is calling Timothy to remember who he is, in this case, who he is to Paul. 
Paul is saying, I think about you all the time. I know the burdens you carry. That's why you are in my prayers night and day. You are special to me. You are precious to me. You are not alone. Then he goes on to say, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Paul pulls on a memory thread. Pulls on a memory thread there. He is calling Timothy to remember once more, this time to go back into his mind and remember when these two companions were separated. Why would Paul do that? Seems like he's trying to, what, reopen a wound or something, revisit a heartache. Why would he do that? I don't think that's what he's doing. Instead, I think Paul is calling Timothy to remember who he is in relationship to Paul. That indeed, this is a special friendship. That their work together is significant and God-ordained. That their time, the time they've spent together means something. So special, in fact, that they could hardly stand to be pulled apart. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. Paul tugs on a memory thread again. He is calling Timothy to remember the people in his life whose faith helped him get to where he is. It was the faithfulness of Eunice and of Lois that drew Paul first to Timothy. Now, it would have been Timothy's zeal and passion and devotion to the gospel that would have implored Paul to put him to work, but that faith, that knowledge of the scripture, that drive to do good and become a respectable person, where did that come from? Paul is saying, don't forget the women whose bodies and faith birthed you. Celebrate them, honor them, remember them. And while you're at it, remember that you're not alone in this work, that there's a long lineage here. It's bigger than you. Paul would say, just as my ancestors' worship of God led me to God, just as your grandmother and mother's faith led you to faith, let us not forget to stay committed and sacrifice for the greater goal so that those behind us can also come to know something about God's grace and salvation. There's a call here to remember those who came before us so that we might also look behind us and live in ways that enable others to experience the good news of God's grace and salvation. And then Paul says in verse 6, Remember the time I laid my hands upon you and prayed over you. For a third time, Paul tugs on a memory thread. He's calling Timothy to remember a moment where another human person affirmed that indeed God was calling Timothy to be a minister of this good news. This too would serve to remind Timothy about who he is. Often, I think, we need help from other people to remember who we truly are to know our place in God's kingdom, to, to name the gifts that we've been given to help up build the body of Christ. And we especially need that when we're struggling, when we're going through hardship, when we're facing difficulty. And this is what Paul is offering Timothy. He's calling him to remember that the real gift, the gift we all share as believers, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's not a spirit of cowardice or fear, but it's a spirit of power and of love and of self Discipline. Paul is saying, you have that, Timothy. And so do we. So do we. Do you see how Paul is encouraging Timothy by simply reminding him of who he is? Child of God, special friend, part of a long line of faithful witnesses and a carrier of the Holy Spirit. I don't know all the hardships Timothy would have faced trying to lead the church in Ephesus. I know I have faced plenty of difficulty in leadership, not just in the church, but in various other roles. Leadership is incredibly difficult. 
And we know that followers of Jesus throughout the history of this faith have struggled with this work to advance the kingdom and share the gospel. We know that's true. We know that we still struggle today. We still struggle today, whether our callings are to serve within the church or outside the church or some combination of both. Anytime we are working to advance light into darkness, there will be struggle. There's a reason Paul instructs the church to put on the armor of God. We have to suit up. We go to battle. And it's not a battle against flesh and blood. I'm prone to think that one of the primary battles that we face as followers of Jesus is attack against our identity. This is just how Satan works. He picks and he picks and he picks at our core identity, trying with all his might to throw us off course, to to make us forget who we truly are, to make us feel far from God, calling us to question who we are. Look no further than the devil's tempting of Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off that high point. That's an attack on Jesus' identity. If you really are who you say you are, do these things. The enemy gets his slimy little fingers on those buttons that cause us to question who we truly are. He tries to tell us we don't matter, that we're worthless, that our work doesn't matter. He tries to threaten our security and our safety so we live in scarcity and stop being generous. He tries to make us forget that at our core, we are beloved sons and daughters of the Most High God, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of a divine creator. And so it makes sense to me why the Apostle Paul would use words to tell the protege Timothy who he is, especially when both of these men are going through the ringer. Remember who you are. I also see Paul calling Timothy to remember who Jesus is. Let's look at the next uh, three verses, if you can throw them up there, Derek, verses 8 through 11. Don't be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul is preaching good news here. He is calling Timothy to remember that God's love for us is so abundant, God's grace so extravagant and extensive that God has sent a Savior to rescue God's people from death, bringing new life eternal for all who come to believe this gospel. Why would Paul be reminding Timothy of this core message? This is Christianity 101. Timothy has been serving the church for a long time. Right? He's been faithful for a long time. He's been apprenticed to Paul. He knows the storyline of scriptures. He knows the redemptive nature of Jesus. Why would Paul be reminding Timothy of this core message? I think it's for the same reason that we need reminded of this core message week after week, day after day. No matter how long we've been serving the church, no matter how long we've been following Jesus, we need to remember who Jesus is, that through him, Death has been overcome. New life is made possible. A new creation is underfoot so that we can keep enduring through this life. We need to hear that and remember that to be encouraged and to remember where our hope comes from. We are people of the resurrection. We need to remember that and we need to remind one another of that. 
right? We can infer that Timothy is indeed facing great hardship, and we can also infer that part of the hardship is dealing with these leaders in Ephesus who are perpetuating inaccurate teaching. So perhaps, by calling Timothy to remember who Jesus is, two things are accomplished. One, Timothy is encouraged, reminded where his hope comes from. Two, Timothy is reminded of his commission to deal with the false teaching, to help other leaders in the church to keep the main thing, the main thing. I think this too is a helpful message for us today. How often is the church in this nation, in this century, divided because we failed to keep the main thing, the main thing? Paul reminds Timothy to hold on to the standard of sound teaching that he has heard in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Remember, remember that Jesus is the message. Jesus is the message that we preach. Finally, Paul calls Timothy to remember who they are together. He says in verse 14, guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. Paul is calling Timothy to remember that the bond of love that they share is the same bond of love that's shared among all the brothers and sisters of the faith, that this love is sealed through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us all. The Holy Spirit is the glue that connects us together. What a mysterious reality we are invited to live into as God's people, as the church. This is Paul's reminder to Timothy that we are one, one faith, one baptism, one church, one in the spirit. It's a call to unity. Why would Paul be reminding Timothy that the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that dwells within them, that empowers them to do this work of sharing the good news, why would he be calling them to also remember that this spirit is alive in the other believers in Ephesus and beyond? I think for the same reason we need to remember it today. The same spirit that empowers us as individuals is the same spirit that brought Christ back from the dead, is the same spirit that dwells across the church in all the believers. The believers in this room share that spirit. The believers in the church up the street share that spirit. The believers across Cincinnati share that spirit. The people who left share that spirit. The people who hurt us share that spirit. The people we're angry at share that spirit. That truth, if we live it, changes things. That can change things. Paul's words are intended to remind Timothy who the church is together to struggle for the sake of unity, words that we need to remember too. So how does remembering strengthen our discipleship? How does remembering help us deepen our intimacy with God, deepen our intimacy with one another, and grow to become more like Christ? When we remember that we are beloved children, children of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, eternally loved, unconditionally loved, forgiven, no matter what we have done and what we have left undone, when we remember that, we might begin to look upon this loving God with awe, and wonder and reverence and turn more and more of our lives over to God to be used for God's purposes. We might start to align our will more regularly with God's will, and that will lead to intimacy with God and with one another. When we remember the lineage of our faith, all the people that have come before us, that have come alongside us, walking with us to help us develop, 
right? Whose faith has impacted our faith, whose light shone a little brighter when ours was dim, when we remember them, we might begin to look upon this great cloud of witnesses with gratitude and with thanksgiving. We might begin to look upon the church and fall in love with it again, not the institution or the structure, but the people. We might begin to look around us and say, who needs encouraging? Who needs a Paul? Who needs a Silas? Where is there a Junia and a Phoebe ready to go and ready, be, ready to be called to something more? We might. We might act on that. This, too, will lead to intimacy with God and intimacy with one another. And when we remember who Jesus is, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, when we remember that God's love took on the form of flesh, lived and died while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were still far away, when we remember this, we might be inclined to look upon this Jesus just a little bit more regularly, to allow his countenance to shine upon us. And when we do that, we might begin to open to change. We might start to become more like him in every way. We might even start to hear ourselves say, Jesus, make me more like you. Make me more gracious like you. Make me more loving like you. Make me more forgiving like you. Make me more self-giving like you. We might. This too might lead to intimacy with God and intimacy with one another. And all of those practices of remembering might help us live in the world looking a little bit more like Jesus as individuals and as the church, as a community. And I think that would be really good news, really good news. So remember who you are, beloved children of God. Remember the people who've helped you get to where you are those who've come before us, remember Jesus, whose spirit dwells within us, whose spirit dwells within all who come to believe. Believe it. Live it. And may this practice of remembering bring God's peace to your heart, to your lives, to our life together, and to the world. Amen. We're going to move on now to a remembering practice that we do every week, and that is the Lord's Supper. We come together around this table to remember Jesus, to remember his life, to remember his death, to remember his resurrection, and to remember that he is still alive, enthroned at the right hand of God. So in just a moment, as the music plays, I invite you to come forward, take the bread, take the juice back to your seat, and we'll participate in the Lord's Supper together. Before we do that, as we do every week, I'd like to invite you into a time of confession. So if you would stand with me, if you're able. Would you say these words of confession aloud as we prepare our hearts to receive communion? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, humbly repent, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk on your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.
night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and handed it to his disciples and saying, take, eat, and remember me. Let's remember Jesus. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and once he'd given thanks, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Take, drink, and remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Amen.